This is episode 23 of Sticky Beak. In this episode, we chat with Martin Perelman from Silk Laser Clinics. With 56 clinics nationwide, an ASX listing and aggressive growth plans, Martin and the team at Silk are doing big things. Jason shared his journey from being an aspiring golfer to running an ASX-listed company out of his hometown of Adelaide. If you're interested in service-based businesses or franchising, you'll enjoy this episode. Welcome to Sticky Beak, Martin. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. And you're in sunny Adelaide. I am. Beautiful time of year down here in March. So it's, uh, no, it's a great spot to be at the moment. I think uh, Adelaide's been a good place to be for the last 12 months, really, or considering <laughs> how it's been. Well, coming from Melbourne anyway, uh, Adelaide, you guys haven't had much lockdown and... Uh, yeah. No, we've been very fortunate down here. We obviously had the uh, the national lockdown in April, May last year, but since then it's really been almost COVID-free, really. It's been back to normality down here, so it's been pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good management by the local government there. Uh, indeed, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But I won't let this spiral into a political interview as it's easy to do in Melbourne. <laughs> um, well, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we like to start from the start with our guests here, Martin. So where did you grow up? Was it in Adelaide? Yeah, look, I, um, I grew up in Adelaide and um, went to high school and primary school here um, and then um, left Adelaide around 18, um, went to the USA, went to college there. In those days, I had the aspirations of being a professional golfer. So I uh, went there on a, a scholarship to play college golf, did that for four years, um, loved it, um, wanted to come home to Australia, moved back to Adelaide for a year and then moved to Sydney. Um, was in Sydney for 10 years, um, sort of getting myself into business and learning that. And I was in really um, sales roles um, and sort of moved up to national sales roles. And it was during that time um, where the opportunity presented to start my own business, um, which we started in Adelaide, but from Sydney. And um, that was the birth of Silk Laser um, back in 2009. Awesome. That must have been a very cool experience, uh, the college golf stuff. Yeah, it was. I mean, geez, it's so long ago now. It was like 1997 to 2000. Yeah. Um, I was 18 and never lived out of home, moved all the way to Florida um, with a bunch of other guys from all over the world and um, away we went, but it was an amazing experience. Um, if you ever get an opportunity to do something like that, um, it's just a really cool experience. We, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, and the, the golf career obviously didn't uh, continue after that. No, look, um, the aspirations um, stayed until probably my early 20s. And then uh, at that age, I sort of wanted to hit a, a spot in my life where I was either go into work or continue on with golf for another 5, 10 uh, years. So I chose to uh, go into work instead and um, still try and play every week when I can with friends. And um, now really that's just... Uh, having fun on the golf course, trying to take money off them and uh, having fun. <laughs> and where's the handicap at the moment? Oh, it's at, it's on one at the moment. So it fluctuates between one and three. So look, yeah. still be able to get around the course okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a long game, but uh, it's my one sort of break that I have from, from life is sort of getting out into the golf course on a Saturday morning. So I, I still love it. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, the form's obviously still pretty good then. Uh, trust me, trust me. <laughs> and what did you say you were studying while you did the scholarship? 
I did a Bachelor of Business Management. So in those days, I didn't really know what else I wanted to, to do. So um, when speaking with my dad at that stage, we decided to do a general business degree. Um, you know, when those days when we thought we we're going to be multi-millionaires as a professional golfer, I needed to have a business degree to be able to manage my finances. So that was sort of the idea. It was just a very general business degree and into management, um, uh, which ended up putting me in good stead of obviously for future career aspirations. Gotcha. And what was the first serious job you had after you finished up um, in the US and came back to start your career? Yeah. Um, so my first real serious job, um, when I moved back to Adelaide, I started working in my, my dad was a retailer. So I started working in his store. It wasn't really a serious job. It was just on the floor selling. Um, he had some jewelry stores. So I was doing sort of that. Um, and then when I moved to Sydney was when I got my first real job. Um, I was a sales rep on the road for a luxury Swiss watch brand. Uh, called Bob and Mercier. I did that for about a year. I was the New South Wales um, sales manager. And, um, and that's what I was where he sort of started being on the road. And that was all about 24, 23, something like that, yeah. um, where I started uh, getting my first job in Sydney. Yeah, gotcha. So you went through that process. And what was the lead up into um, coming up with the Silk Laser idea? Yeah, so I did sort of Swiss watches and different national roles for probably... I did it for 10 years, but when I hit sort of 30s, I've been there for about six years, I was sort of in national roles by then. Um, my business partner at the time, who also happened to be my roommate at the time, Chris, um, was working in the industry of the cosmetic laser industry, he, but he was working on the laser repair side of things. So he was doing repairs on, on different secondhand and machines in other beauty clinics. And... Um, was part of sort of an opportunity to open up a, a pure play laser hair removal clinic in Adelaide. He was from Adelaide. I was from Adelaide. Um, in those days, he, he'd written a three-year business plan to open a few pure play laser clinics in Adelaide. And at that stage, I was 30, um, wanted to have a sort of a crack at it. And um, so away we went. So Chris put together a sort of a team of four of us. It was himself and myself in Sydney and then two guys in Adelaide, um, Mark and Matt. And um, that was where the birth of, of our first laser clinic was, um, was, was sort of that from that business plan. Yeah, sure. And just quickly, for people who haven't heard of Silk before, um, which probably isn't that many at this stage, but uh, for those who haven't, can you give us the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. So we're a, a national cosmetic laser and skin business. Um, we offer a variety of services from cosmetic injectables to laser hair removal, um, variety of skin treatments, uh, body contouring and cosmeceutical care. So we've got approximately uh, 56 clinics nationally uh, and we'll have about 60 by end of financial year. And we're now just recently publicly listed on the ASX. Yeah, and congrats on that. I'm sure it was a lot of work last year, but um, seems it like was. it's paying dividends. Yeah, very Fun rewarding. <laughs> really a great experience for the whole team and um, obviously very humbling to be able to be uh, listed on the ASX. Um, but, you know, the team put a huge amount of effort in and, um, and now we're sort of in the life of the, of the public eye, which is a, a different play again. So it's all a new learning curve as we grow. Absolutely. Before we talk too much on that part of it, um, we'll go back to, so you were just getting started. Um, you yep. drafted up the business plan. You guys started to open a clinic in Adelaide. Um, yes. What did you do to, can you remember how much capital you needed and yeah. how you found the finance for that? Yeah, sure. So um, I remember it very, very well. So um, I actually still remember to this day where I was uh, 
sitting on the couch and my business partner was at the desk and he looks at me with this sort of wry smile and said, what? And he goes, I've just bought two lasers. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh God, here we go. So um, I remember when we signed our first lease. Um, I mean, we didn't know what we were really doing. We had the business plan, but we had no experience in lease negotiations and supplier negotiations. But I, mean, I suppose the good thing is we all had each other. There was four of us. Um, we all had very different skill sets. Um, so we could all learn off each other. Um, we all start, we started with $200,000, $50,000 each. Um, that's all we had to get started with buying lasers and building a store or a clinic. Um, we had to pull on family and friends to be able to do things for us. I remember my sister, who's an interior designer, she designed the clinic for us. Uh, my best friend, who was a graphic designer, did the logo and the website for us for, I think, for $8,000, I think, from memory, something like that. Yeah. Um, we bought our first laser um, and that's all we really did and got a, an account with a skincare brand. Advertised in those days, actually, it seems only 11 years ago, but it was a combination of online and in the paper. Um, got our first staff member, Kate, and interviewed her. And literally, that's how we started. Um, it was Kate and Joe, two girls, um, two technicians, um, and one laser. And um, away we went to a little place in King William Road, High Park. Yeah, nice. What year was that? October 26, 2009 was the date we opened. 2009, so just after GFC. Yeah, so we've got a lot of people asking, are you sure you want to open a retail business in the, at the end or middle of a GFC. I remember my brother-in-law asking me, is he sure this is the right call? In those days, all of us were single. Um, it was money. We wanted to have a go out. Um, you know, I did all the wrong things. I borrowed money from the bank to start the business and went into partnership with friends. I did all the wrong things. Um, but, you know, it, you know, I look at it now and obviously it ended up being falling out okay. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. A, a very common theme for guests we've had is that the biggest um, piece of advice they have is to just do something, take steps forward. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. And even though you admit now you probably did a lot of the wrong things, it's obviously still managed to work out for the best. Yeah, you, you're spot on. I mean, hindsight's a great thing. Um, in those times, I didn't think it was the wrong thing. It was the only thing I had to do. You know, I was, it was a really interesting time in my career. I was, going high up in the corporate ladder in my careers, but I never really wanted to be a top employee or anything like that in a company working for someone else. I always had this drive to have something on my own, but it was a really difficult thing because I didn't know what to do. And so when Chris presented the opportunity to me, it was just the right time in my career. Did I ever think I'd be in the world of, you know, laser and injectables, Botox and Brazilians? No, of course not. But that's, it was just an opportunity and um, I took it and, you know, I think Chris saw something in me in the way I work. And, um, you know, I was very lucky that he was, I was grateful that he gave me that opportunity to be a partner with him. And, um, you know, we took it by the horns and we ran with it. Yeah. I find that part really interesting that you mentioned, um, like you'd already established that, you know, it wasn't for you to have a long-term career working for someone else. And that's a pretty common theme with entrepreneurs. Um, but that part you mentioned about not knowing what it was exactly that you wanted to do, that's really, really difficult for a lot of people. Like they have the drive to do something of their own. Can you describe in a bit more detail what it was about the opportunity that made you want to sink your teeth into it? Yeah. I mean, look, if I think about my background, my dad was a small business owner for 
for my whole life. So I suppose I was very much conditioned to being a, an employer or my own boss or creating something for myself. I wasn't really IT savvy, so I really didn't get into that area. That was sort of Chris's part and things like that. I was sort of a, a retailer or, you know, I'm good with people, and those type of things. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that where my career was going, I was not getting fulfilled daily. You know, I moved a long way up the career. I was managing, you know, 30, 40 staff, but it still wasn't what I wanted to do. And so, you know, it's interesting. I read these articles about people that were in corporate world and then quit their job and opened a coffee shop or, and they're growing this and stuff. And, you know, I can really relate to that because I knew where my career was going was coming financially rewarding and all that type of stuff, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I wanted to create my own destiny and, and be my own boss. And I suppose that really comes from the way I saw with my dad and what he had created. And so you always need that idea or that something to do. And, and it, it does ring very true. You just need to have a crack at something. And that doesn't have to be necessarily the career that you do for the next 20 years. That might leapfrog into something else that does something else, but you know, you learn so much. And, you know, I look back at what I started with and how little I knew, but you know, you've got so many people around you that can help you. Um, you need to get good people that can assist you with that. Um, and that we all had good work ethics and we worked hard. So, you know, in those days we all had full-time jobs and we did silk on the side. So, you know, I'd work my full-time job and then come home and then do payroll at night and do, you know, all these types of things. Um, and that's how we sort of started. But, you know, you've just got to pick something and, and have a go at it. Um, and look, it's not always going to be successful. And, you know, the, all the adages are things fail in the first five years or they fail in the first year, then another 95% fail in the next five years. And, um, you know, from us, again, we started very small. We didn't get paid at that time, but we were lucky because we all had roles that could pay us at that stage as well. Um, and that's really how the first four or five years went. Yeah, got it, got it. So you bootstrapped to a large extent for those initial years. Um, that what you mentioned there brings up another interesting point, which is knowing when the good cutoff point is for giving up your existing stream of income or revenue and moving full time into the business that you're yes. running. Did you, was there anything there that stood out as a signal to you that it was time to, okay, I, I'm going to dedicate, dedicate all my time to this now? Yeah. Yeah. Look, there wasn't our business. I mean, if you refer back to, we had a three year business plan um, and that day was to open three clinics. Uh, three or four clinics, maybe one a year, pure laser hair removal, and um, then potentially sell the business and move on. That was one of the business partners and their idea. As you get into a business, you see further opportunities. You see the business morphing and changing and opportunities to grow. And in those days, it was the birth of sort of the laser clinic model. Uh, you know, other companies were growing extremely strong in the East Coast. We were sort of setting up our own niche in South Australia. Um, and so the original founders all sort of had wanted different ideas. Some wanted to take their investment and move into their own careers and other things like that. So we sort of sort of hit a bit of an, an area about five or six years in where we had about five to six clinics all in South Australia. And a lot of the founders all had different ideas of where they wanted to go, understanding, understandably. Um, at that stage, I was very driven to really take the business to the next level. So we sort of made a decision to bring on external investment that it gave people to um, some of the founders ability to sell down some of their shares and become passive shareholders. And that also gave an opportunity like myself to then move back to Adelaide where I was still living in Sydney and sort of take on a, a managing director or a CEO role. Over those first five or six years, um, it sort of naturally happened that I sort of started to sort of move into that CEO role. 
although doing it from Sydney um, and not being paid for that role, but that was what the business needed. Um, and then when we brought on an external investment, then that allowed me to move that back. Uh, I was very lucky my wife's from Adelaide. She wanted to come home. Um, and so um, the business gave me a, I remember it, the, the business gave me a six month opportunity to, to, to grow the business in a interim CEO payroll. And um, the rest was history. Gotcha. And what did the growth look like in that period? Yeah, so um, the guys and I sort of moved into, we started to build our head office. We started to grow a bit more aggressively. We brought up an external investment, set up a board. It was a really important step in the business because setting up that structure, although it was a very basic board and structure, was really important to get some good governance and to also bring in assistance. So we've got an external chairman, um, he's still our chairman today um, and probably my mentor across this entire um, career for me. So he's sort of my person I always talk to and confide in. And, you know, he, he gets my crazy calls in the middle of the night and uh, all over in the morning, et cetera. So, um, but it really started us to reinvest and focus on the business. One of the investors um, in our business at that stage was Paul Wheeler. Now, Paul um, was the owner and founder of Cartridge World. And I think in those days, he sold, when he sold that business, he had 1,500 clinics or stores around the world. And so he brought a really great experience in franchising. Um, we had other big investment from Adelaide and that really allowed us to get a lot more razor focus on what we were doing. So we started franchising um, and we first made our first opportunity to go interstate. Um, we went into the Northern Territory randomly enough, but we saw that as an opportunity because it was very similarly aligned to South Australia. And we did our first franchise clinic. And in those days, our laser hair removal offer had really morphed into a bit more of a cosmetic clinic, but still laser was a big part of that business. And that first year, that business just exploded. It did unbelievably well. Um, the clinic was making huge revenue and turnover and quickly became our number one, almost close to number one business in our portfolio. And that was really the starting point of giving us that confidence as we started to sort of grow. So from 2015, when we took on the investment to about 2017, we doubled our footprint, went from six clinics to 12 clinics, um, mainly SA, Northern Territory, we did two. And then we started in Tasmania as well. And we did one there and then, and then eventually two. And it was then we were approached by private equity in late 2017 to buy into the business to then really trying to become a national player. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it was quite rapid. Um, you mentioned that uh, gentleman who was the mentor and initial chair. Um, how did you meet him? Yeah. So that came from our private investment. Um, when the private investment bought in, they wanted to bring in the governance. And so one of the investors, Andrew, he um, sort up a few interviews with a variety of chairmen uh, or chairman roles. Um, and we went through an interview process and um, Boris, who is our chairman, was a real standout. He'd had his own business over the years, a recruitment business, which he had built from scratch and then sold. And he was now doing board roles and chairman roles. And um, we all just fell in love with him and, um, and brought him on board. And he was our independent chairman and still is to this day. Gotcha, gotcha. When you first started um, with that first clinic, just to go back to that, um, where did the, how quickly did the customers start coming in? Was there a period of nervousness where you're like, oh, have we done the right thing or did it explode from the start? How did it look in those yeah, first weeks? Um, no, it definitely didn't explode from the start. I still actually remember to this day when we first, when our first ever week, not first week, the first time we ever did $10,000 in a week in sales and how excited we were to achieve $10,000 in a week. 
And that was probably a couple of months after we opened. Um, again, we started very, very humbly. We had one staff member working six days a week, you know, well, five, two staff was doing six days a week. Um, Chris, uh, my business partner, was very much focused on digital and Google. And in those days, you know, again, we were sort of educating the market of what laser hair removal was versus shaving and waxing and how does it work and things like that. So, you know, we started early with family and friends. Um, our pricing was very different um, to what it is now, a much higher price point, but again, competitive nature was very different. Um, but yeah, we were doing, you know, three or 4,000, but just enough to pay the bills and we didn't have a head office infrastructure. So it was just getting by, paying the bills. You know, we didn't even know really about bass and you know, all that super, we had to learn all of that as we went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very steep learning curve when you get started, isn't sure it? Sure is, sure is. This episode of Sticky Beak is brought to you by Digital Deluxe. If you're sick of digital agencies that overpromise and underdeliver, you need to speak to Digital Deluxe. We can't guarantee miracles, but we can guarantee great service and a logical ROI-focused approach. Visit www.digitaldeluxe.com.au forward slash stickybeak to access our special offer for Sticky Beak listeners. What did you guys do to systemize? Like, is that something that you focused on from the get-go or did it come into play later? Because obviously to go from one clinic to, is it 56 clinics in total yeah. now? Um, yeah. Obviously you need to have some systemization by the time you get to that scale. Yes. Um, at what point did you start implementing that and what was the process for implementing yeah. it? I mean, Chris early on wanted to make sure everything was cloud-based. And again, in those days, cloud-based was still in its infancy. So, you know, it was a really key move for us that when we chose our point of sale and our software, it was all to be cloud-based. Um, so we still use the same point of sale that we did um, 11 years ago, although we now have a back-end access through the API and we can really customize it as we went. Um, we we're always making sure we could systemize things in a way that gives us access anywhere we are in the world, um, but really, we have a variety of different ownership models. So every business is treated like its own independent clinic, you know, i.e. a franchise or a joint venture franchise. So, you know, for us, it's been part of our growth as we've grown is continuing to add. We're starting to outgrow some of our systems, so we'll continue to invest in that. But I mean, our systems aren't overly complicated. We have a cloud-based point of sale system. We use Xero as our accounting software on a clinic-by-clinic basis. Um, but we have retainers with IT companies now that help us to customize and personalize things as we go it was a really important piece for us that we could create this cookie cutter model that we could replicate very very quickly so one of the reasons why advent our private equity sponsor was so appealing to us as a company was we were probably way too small for their normal investment we only had 12 clinics we were doing probably two or three million bucks either it wasn't very strong we we're way below what they wanted to but what they liked is we'd set up this structure that it was really easy to be replicated. So, you know, in that first 18 months, we went from 12 to 30, uh, 40 clinics. So we bought a company of 15, 14 clinics. We then opened up another 16. We bought a skincare company. So we threw all of that in and almost broke my head office, but uh, we got through it. Um, but we'd already set up that whole backend area of support. So we used a company called World Manager that has an online internet sort of training center our team really spent a huge amount of time building that out. So now every one of our technicians in, and or nurses in every single clinic has an iPad 
They can access live training at any time. There's libraries of information, updated sales promotions. All of that's all built through this system. Point of sales software, they can look at it anywhere they go. It's all digital online. So we just moved to a cloud-based very early that allowed us to have real good systemizations for continue to replicate. Gotcha, gotcha. In terms of the, so you mentioned the cloud-based systems and all of those things that you put in place. What about the uh, logistical stuff or like the equipment that you were using? Um, is there been a lot of evolution since 2009 in terms of the technology and having to update on a regular basis or is it a bit more static? How does that look? Yeah, look, we had a, a really early philosophy that we would always go with best-in-class technology and best-in-class products um, and then offer them at affordable pricing. That was sort of our basic mission statement. And one of the reasons why we would do that and maybe not get the margin we would versus a lower level supplier is due to their infrastructure. So, you know, in those days when we were small, we had to really rely on big national players infrastructure and it was up to our relationships with them to get them to believe in our story. And, you know, I think about probably my two biggest suppliers, Allegan, who's our injectable supplier, Botox fillers, and Candela, who's our major laser supplier, you know, the amount that they had to believe in myself and our founders on what our growth story was, you know, those days, five clinics, six clinics, you know, we're going to be national one day and all that type of stuff. Um, and they took punts on us and gave us that opportunity. So we relied on them very heavily until we could continue to then build in infrastructure for us to be able to manage that. But to be honest with you, we still to this day still have a hugely strong relationship with those suppliers. And they're a key piece of our, our growth. But, you know, in saying that, we've continued to deliver against what we've always promised and um, mm. we will continue in the future as well. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting um, about those relationships you had because I think it's often overlooked with businesses. Like everyone is thinking about sales and how they can grow and all that sort of thing. But for people like yourself in particular who, you know, obviously very growth-minded and good at sales and that sort of thing, that part of it's easy. It's the throughput that's the hard part and can often be a bottleneck to their growth. Um, it's all about people. Um, our yeah. business is all about people. So you need to have great staff around you, great people around you and have them in the right culture. You know, a bad culture can be like poison in a business and can derail a business. Culture starts from the top. So I believe it all starts from me, feeds down to my department heads, but then feeds down to managers, franchises, and then feeds down to staff. So culture is the number one thing in our business. It's something we got to continue to manage um, as we grow. Um, but it's something we always stay front in mind. And that's why I'm quite a high energy person. And I think that rubs off quite well on our office. Our office is very close knit. We call it the bullpen in the middle. Everyone works on top of each other, but that's all part and parcel of how successful we've been. Um, but also people in these big companies as well is, you know, people at big suppliers, they want the next success story. They want to back the, the, the winning horse. And, mm. you know, for us, it's been a great relationship with all of them. And, you know, people move from one company to another and we've sort of moved with them, but still keep those other relationships. So, you know, suppliers are a key, key piece of um, our growth story. And now the publicistic um, life is now our institutions and our mum and dads that invest with us are, are key parts of our growth story as well. And they're our partners. Yeah, great. You mentioned culture there. Um, with what you guys offer, it's obviously a very personal service. Um, what and when you go into a clinic, you you know you undressing and they're seeing everything basically. So, 
what do you do to make sure that you're well firstly that you're finding the right staff and that obviously they're delivering that great personalized experience how because at the scale you're at you're obviously you know you'd be constantly employing new staff so and your franchisees would be so what do you do to make sure that the culture is in in the right place and also that the right experience is being delivered by those staff yeah, so the number one way we do that, and it was it was a real problem that we came up against when we we're growing so quickly, is how do we keep culture and how do we keep great service? So it's all focused. We start from the bottom up. We start from the customer experience first, and then work to see how does the staff support the customer, how does the manager support the staff, how does then head office support the manager, right? So it all comes from the, the customer down. NPS is our big driver for that. For that. So um, about two years ago, we implemented our internal NPS. Now, for everyone that doesn't know what NPS, that's a net promoter score. So that's sort of where you interview. You might get it when you go and see a, a company where they'll ask, would you recommend this store to family and friends? And then you're going to get a rating out of 10. And it sort of measures the 8, 9, 10s versus the 3, 4, 5s. We use that as an internal management tool. So every single client that comes through our business gets sent that email survey and they get sent it every third time they come into our business ongoing as well. And then we then benchmark that against national and we benchmark that against our managers and our staff and they're bonused accordingly. So the rule of thumb is any poor response needs to be called within 24 hours and a solution found for that client. And look, we do get poor results. Our staff might be worked really hard. They might not be able to fit someone in. There's a, things happen, right? Um, so, you know, nationally, I'm very proud. We've got a national NPS of 78. Um, that's in, in excess of 20,000 people being um, interviewed in the last six months. Um, you know, it's probably close to market leading in our industry um, and is very high. So anything above 50 is extremely strong. Um, so that's our best internal management tool that we implemented um, and still use this day very strongly. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a pretty impressive score, actually. And do you just issue that online or how do you... Yeah. So every single day, the store gets their results um, and then they get all of their NPS for how many that is for that day. And then the area managers will oversee those NPS on a weekly basis and then understand what they've done. We have a couple of chat groups on our Facebook group um, and clinic managers and franchise owners love to shout from their rooftops and they get a perfect set of tens and things like that. So again, it sort of breeds good culture. Um, so... Yeah, we've set that up in a great way. It's linked into our point of sale. So every single day and then a weekly and a monthly um, result is spitted out. Yeah, cool. I think that's a really good tip there as well, having that keystone metric to um, guide the business. Um, a lot of businesses lack that. Um, they yes. you know, can pursue too many um, frivolous metrics and it, it's very hard for management and team members to understand where they're actually going. But having that one metric can be really powerful. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's a really key one for us. I mean, Google reviews, Trustpilot reviews are important from a customer understanding who still are and what's that like. But NPS is an absolute huge one because word of mouth in my in our industry is really important for creating a great brand because, as you mentioned, we're doing very intimate services and we're really talking to people about all of their potential issues that they are worried about, right? Skin treatments or wrinkles or hair or whatever that may be. Mm. So having great customer service in such a touch business is really important. So we, we live and breathe by our NPS and our staff and managers love receiving their NPS. And usually it's, it's good and they sort of benchmark. It's about creating what that benchmark is in our business. So, you know, when we first started, the benchmark was, you know, 40. Now it's like above 60 because, you know, the, the expectations just go up. 
yeah gotcha have you guys experienced any near-death moments no no near-death moments knock on wood um you know we have really strong training protocols we ensure that we have treatments that are non-invasive um, we try and avoid anything that we know could have a major adverse reaction. Um, our, our suite of services um, shouldn't have any permanent issues. Um, so we don't really have a lot that can potentially go wrong in a, in a long-term adverse way. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So what was the decision to go public like for you? Uh, was it something that you'd sort of establish you were going to do a long way out or...? Yeah. No. So, you know, when we brought out our private equity sponsor, um, we had a three-year plan. Um, that was to take us from 12 clinics to 60 and to get us to sort of uh, 15 millibita, which, you know, I think at the end of this financial year, we're pretty well on track to do exactly those numbers, three and a half years we did it in. Um, but we see a huge opportunity for further growth. So where was that further growth going to come from? Um, was it going to be through a potential sale to another private equity or a competitor? or was it going to come through the public market? Um, we saw the opportunity in the public market. It was an opportunity for Silk to be the real first pure play in our industry. And what I mean by that is, if you wanted to buy into this type of industry at the moment on the public market, you would have to buy into another type of business because they have a variety of offerings. You know, API owns ClearSkin, for example. They have Priceline Pharmacy, et cetera. So we saw a real opportunity for a pure play um, and an opportunity to really utilize this as our platform to really become a national big player. So we have a, we have a lofty goal of 150 clinics um, in the medium to long term. And, um, and the IPO platform has given us the media attention for us to potentially do that. Um, and that'll be a combination of organic growth and M&A opportunities as well. Yep, gotcha. When you say medium to long term, can you put that into years? Yeah, so if you think about our current run rate of organic stores, so, you know, Greenfield sites, we sort of run at a run rate of six to 10 clinics a year. That's sort of the sort of opening. That's sort of what management can handle. If I'm doing more than that, I start getting dirty stares in the office. <laughs> um, this year we've done 12 or we are going to do 12. So it's the team's a bit stressed in the back half of the year, but um, they're okay. Um, so if you think about that sort of run rate is sort of the organic run rate. And then if we start to do some M&A opportunities, that's where you'll get to that 150 in a faster process. So there might be a couple of small chains of five to 10 clinics, or there might be a, a larger chain that we might um, merge or acquire with, but they're all potential pipeline opportunities. Gotcha. So like six or seven years, potentially. Yeah. Let, let's round it out, say five to six. I think we could achieve it if, if all goes according to plan. Sure. Well, you're going to be busy. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're based in Adelaide. Um, Adelaide tends to get, probably overlooked as a potential HQ for a lot of Australian businesses, um, but it's yeah. a beautiful city. It's affordable in, in comparison to Melbourne and Sydney, easy to get around, low traffic. Um, I'm talking it up here, but you live there. Uh, what, what can you say about having a business based out of Adelaide, Martin? Yeah, um, look, I didn't want to move back to Adelaide hand on heart seven years ago. I was living in Sydney for 10 years, loved it. My wife was the big driver uh, to move back to Adelaide. Um, and obviously the business was in its infancy and it needed, and we only had stores in Adelaide at that time. So we set up our office, very, very small office. We called it the train carriage. It was just at the back of our Hyde Park clinic. And we had about four staff at that stage. And so we started our office in Adelaide purely because that's where it was. Um, best decision we ever made. Love Adelaide. Um, love being back here. I've now got three young kids. 
Um, and all of the things that you said, great city, great to get around. We're really engaged head office staff, really people that believe in our business. We are probably lower attrition than most other companies, maybe in Sydney and Melbourne. People really love working for the company and stay and you get a good tenure out of, out of staff. You know, I look across the office here and probably most of the staff here have been with us three, four, five years and you start, you know, and for longer, I think some are seven or eight years. So you get IP built into them and into their DNA that you just can't get, you know, with others. So, look, we do have an office in Sydney. It is a small office, but we've got a few of our department heads there. There, yeah. We will continue to build out that office as those department heads build out their teams. So what I mean by department, we've got a sort of a department head across each of our service categories, hair, injectables, skincare, all those things. A few of them are out of Sydney just because we don't have that special skill set in Adelaide at the moment. But um, look, still the absolute centre, nerve centre of the business is out of Adelaide. Um, and I'd strongly recommend it for people to set up offices. It's affordable, great quality staff, and you get good tenure out of them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was coming to Adelaide a fair bit before COVID for different business um, engagements. And I did notice that, that there were a lot of, um, staff there that were had moved home from like Sydney or Melbourne yeah. and they wanted to start their family in Adelaide and all that sort of thing. So that tenure thing makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Nearly in, in my mid-20s, nearly all of my friends moved to Sydney and now in my um, early 40s, nearly all of my friends have moved back to Adelaide and had families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the weather's pretty good there, right? And you've got decent beaches. Sure, sure do. It's a great place. It's a great place. We're getting a huge amount of people wanting to come home. And I think one of the things that COVID has done is that it's made people realize they can work from anywhere. And as long as they're good at what they do, you know, welcome to the world of Zoom. Um, and it's been a, a brilliant uh, a modality and it's allowed people to, to really explore where they want to live. Yeah. Have you noticed many other larger companies moving to Adelaide, like moving HQs there at all? Oh, look, I know it's been tough in the last 12 months, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been difficult. Yeah. Um, so not as many as... Uh, I'm seeing a lot more people move back, but not necessarily head offices being set up. Yeah. Um, it's definitely making an impact on, re uh, on property and things like that here. Um, I think that's probably one of the things that people are really enjoying about our um, listing, I suppose, is that we do have a head office out of Adelaide and we are a South Australian success story. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's really gained a lot of traction in the media. Um, and so, you know, we're very proud of that. And, um, you know, we still tie on our roots of being a South Australian company, even though we've got offices in Sydney as well. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So you're obviously a, a busy guy, Martin. Uh, what do you do outside of work to keep your sanity in check? <laughs> um, I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, my family is very full on in regards to that. So I've got one in year one, one in reception and one in an ELC. So that's a very busy time. Um, don't go out a lot. Um, it's at home. And then um, my Saturday golf is probably my Saturday. Um, we've just bought a block of land and we're going to be building a beach house. So a lot of our time will be down there to sort of uh, unwind. Um, but really my whole life is around my kids. And to be honest with you, when I get home and there's three crazy kids, with dinner, etc., then work goes straight out the window for that period until uh, till later at night when we're on the couch and I can start getting back into it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you must have been uh, insanely busy and underslept a couple of years ago. Uh, for people without kids, obviously, that zero to two is pretty tough and hands-on. Yes. How did you handle that? Yeah, <laughs> it was really interesting, actually. I remember when um, Advent bought us in January of 2018, 
it was the birth of our third child. Literally the day the sale went through, um, Oliver, my son was born. And I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Because <laughs> Advent then put the 100 day plan of what we want to achieve and the three year strategy, which was going from 12 clinics to 60. Um, and I had uh, a, a young boy with two other kids under four. I was like, oh my God. But um, yeah. look, it's been a few uh, tired days and nights, but um, look, as I said, we've been doing this for a long time and we've got a good, I've got really great people around me. I've got great department heads. I've got great marketing. I've got, I've got people that just believe in, in, in the company. Um, and so they did a lot of the heavy lifting and they still do to this day. Um, as my role is continuing to change, I'm quite a hands-on CEO, very operational, but as my role will start to change a bit more to media and IR investors and public, et cetera, I'll continue to rely more and more on a really engaged head office. So um, that was part of the role of what they did is, you know, it's probably my biggest advice that I can give to anyone wanting to start business is just get great people around you that believe in you as a person and believe in your business. If, if they believe in you and they believe in what you do, then they'll work hard for you and try and get a great result. And, you know, as long as you reward them, even verbally, it's really important because, you just got to create good culture and get people to believe in you. And that was part of the whole growth story for us. Yeah, absolutely. Who do you think has had the most impact on your success in your career? My silk career has probably been my chairman. Yeah. Um, he's been the one that's kept me very grounded um, in what I'm doing and been a real helping focal point for, for me and my growth. Um, getting, External investment has been really important and having a board to sound ideas off. They all have huge amounts of experience and allowed me to ask questions and, you know, things that we do for granted now, I had no idea on and how to do those things. So, you know, probably my chairman and my board, um, probably my dad has obviously been a big influence in regards to being a business owner and small business owner, although still it's not really a small business, but you know what I mean? Starting that way. Um, but really, I could see my career really blossoming um, when we did that first investment uh, externally and that board was set up. That was really the start of my career. Yeah, got it, got it. Um, do you engage in any kind of ongoing learning? You mean externally for myself personally? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. not necessarily formal, like it could be just reading books or doing you know, online courses, anything like that. Yeah, look, nothing formally at the moment. Um, it's something I would love to do. Um, it's something we've talked a bit about formally through board of directors and things like that, MBAs, but the amount of um, learning I've got on the job has been so fulfilling. Um, I just don't have the time at the moment, if I'm honest, not with three young kids, um, but it is something that I would like to do in the future and something I recommend for everyone to do. Um, but, you know, my learnings have all come from doing and learning and making my mistakes and then going on from there. Yeah. What's the number one piece of advice you'd give to someone who's thinking about or is in early stages of starting their own business? Believe in what you do, um, be driven in what you do and lead by example. Um, I think leading by example is probably the most important thing to show everyone that you're willing to get out and sweep the front floors if you want to set the example and don't expect others to have it. They will follow you by design. Um, they will follow you naturally if you are that leader. So having a great way to show that you're willing to do anything and everything. I've done every single role in this company. 
and that probably has set me up for my current role so that all of the heads can ask me this and this and I've had an experience before and I can talk about doing this and it could be something as small as the flooring at one of our clinics to a marketing designer this and that and that's sort of if I look back at those 11 years that's sort of been my career progression as I've done every role so lead by example and believe in what you do and then get great people around you and that will that will come naturally afterwards great advice Martin Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, if anyone wants to look you up online or look at Silk, where would you send them? Yeah, so website is silklaser.com.au. There's obviously the normal website at the, at the top. There's also an investor page in the, the footer at the as well. Um, you can obviously look me up through LinkedIn, just through my name. Um, and yeah, then the main way is to get in touch. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Martin. All the best with Silk. Sounds like you guys are on a rapid uh, incline at the moment. So yeah, all the best. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Sticky Beef. If you've got any feedback or suggestions for guests or topics you'd like us to cover, just send it through to info at stickybeef.com.au.